Uh, Leviticus chapter 9, we'll begin reading in verse number 1. The Bible says, And it came to pass on the eighth day that Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said unto Aaron, Take thee a young calf for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And unto the children of Israel thou shalt speak, saying, Take ye a kid of the goats for a sin offering, and a calf and a lamb, both of the first year without blemish, for a burnt offering, also a bullock and a ram for peace offerings, to sacrifice be for the Lord, and a meat offering mingled with oil, for today the Lord will appear unto you." And they brought that which Moses commanded before the tabernacle of the congregation, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord commanded that ye should do, and the glory of the Lord shall appear unto you. And Moses said unto Aaron, Go into the altar and offer thy sin offering and thy burnt offering, and make an atonement for thyself and for the people, and offer the offering of the people, and make an atonement for them as the Lord commanded. Let's skip down to verse number 22. The Bible says, And Aaron lifted up his hand toward the people and blessed them and came down from offering of the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of the congregation and came out and blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the people. And there came a fire out from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat, which when all the people saw, they shouted, and fell on their faces. Let us pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your word. And we thank you that every word that you have given to us in the Bible is inspired and is meaningful for us, whether that's an epistle that Paul wrote or this, this passage in Leviticus. And I pray that you would please take uh, some application and apply it to our hearts this morning, that we would be able to grow closer to you through what we hear this morning. I pray you'd please bless your word as it, as it is preached. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, no one really turns to Leviticus for easy reading, okay? Uh, Leviticus is not a very popular book for preaching or even Bible studies or even simply reading through. And Leviticus, we, we should know this by now if you're in Bible college, that it was a manual for the priest and the Levites in worship. It was a manual for their cer ceremonial law. And because of this, there is some difficult language uh, that is in Leviticus, and, and oftentimes uh, there's a lot of repetition that may be confusing if you're just reading through it uh, in your devotions. And yet it gives us a glimpse into the ancient culture and the context of really the entire Old Testament and as well a lot of the New Testament. If you read through Hebrews, you, you need to have a good understanding of what Leviticus is teaching. The principles in Leviticus are just as inspired as any New Testament epistle. And in it, we can discover the first instance of God's revi revival fire falling. Now, before this passage, God's fire falling from heaven was always a sign of judgment. If you think about Sodom and Gomorrah, or you think about Egypt with uh, hailstones filled, uh, uh, surrounded by fire falling down on Egypt during the plagues. And you even think about Mount Sinai and you think about uh, the, the judgment of God that was hovering over that mountain as God, God's presence was made known to them. And, and now uh, God's fire from this point on is going to represent something very different. 
It's not going to represent God's judgment as much as it's going to represent God's blessing. Now, the, the most popular story of fire falling from heaven would be Elijah. Hundred years late, hundreds of years later, uh, Elijah would become famous in 1 Kings chapter 18 for God sending fire down from heaven. But he was not the first person to be able to see God's fire fall. You could turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and you can see that when King Solomon uh, dedicated the temple, that God's fire fell in 2 Chronicles 7.1. Now when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the house. We can rewind a little bit even more and we can see King David as he is purchasing Ornan's threshing floor in 1 Chronicles 21.26 and David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called upon the Lord and he answered him from heaven by fire upon the altar of burnt offering. And as we review a little bit more, we come to our passage here in Leviticus as God is instituting his covenant with Israel and he is instituting the ceremonial law that carries much weight in communicating to the people of how to grow closer to him. The question is this morning, how can we see God's fire fall in our generation and in our own lives? And I hope that is your desire here this morning. I hope that's your desire as you're serving the Lord in your ministry and as you're knocking doors and as you're getting opportunities to preach. I hope it's your desire to see God's fire fall in our generation that we can see a great revival, a, a, a stirring of God's presence in our generation. Now, there's something very interesting about all of these different stories that I mentioned, whether it's Elijah, Solomon, David, or, or Moses. There's always something that prerequisites the, the, the falling of the fire of God. And if you go back to 1 Kings 18, you could start with Elijah again. And the Bible says in verse number 32, And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two measures of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bullock in pieces and laid him on the wood. So we see before fire fell with Elijah, there was a sacrifice that was made. We can even talk about Solomon in 2 Chronicles 5, 6, same story. Also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel that were assembled unto him before the ark sacrificed sheep and oxen which could not be told nor numbered for multitude. And the verse we just read a moment ago, uh, chapter 5, verse number 6, the fire consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the house. We could talk about David in 1 Chronicles 21, 26. David built there an altar unto the Lord and he offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And we can read in verse number 22 of our passage, and Aaron lifted up his hand toward the people and blessed them and came down from offering of the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offering. So every instance of God's fire falling from heaven and God's reviving presence coming upon his people was prerequisited by this sacrifice. Now, as we read the Old Testament, we often confuse all the distinctions of these sacrifices. A lot of times as we think about a sacrifice, we think about what the Bible calls a sin offering. But there are many types of sacrifices and many types of offerings that are mentioned here in the Bible. And if we could just take a moment to study what those sacrifices meant, maybe we will have a glimpse of God's fire falling in our lives. 
Now, the order here of different sacrifices is a little bit different. And we can look at some narrative passages in the Bible in Leviticus and also in 2 Chronicles. And we can understand the order, very significant chronological order of how these offerings and how these sacrifices were made. So very quickly this morning, let me give you three categories of spiritual sacrifices that bring God's fire in our lives. Turn over to chapter, verse number two, once again, of chapter number nine. The Bible said, And he said unto Aaron, Take thee a young calf for a sin offering. The first category I see is this category of sin offerings. And these sin offerings represented one thing to the children of Israel. It was to clean up their sin. Clean up your sin. You see, before any of the other offerings were made, the sin offering was the most important. Now, this sin offering represented, and even this word is used throughout our passage, the atonement for sin, the atonement before God. Now, some characteristics of this specific offering. This encompassed all people. It was required of everyone. It didn't matter if you were a high priest or it didn't matter if you were the, the poorest person in the land. You were required to bring a sin offering and God gives different levels. The high priest was uh, ordered to give a bull as a sacrifice. A ruler or a male goat. A commoner would give a female goat or a lamb. A poor person would give two turtle doves or pigeons and the extremely poor would bring flour to offer as their sin offering. And we must remember that the Bible is very clear, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You see, the same is true today. We all need a sin offering. We all need to have our sins forgiven. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter what class of people you are in society. We all need an atonement from God. Second characteristic of the sin offering would be that it served as a foundation for all the other offerings. So all the other offerings we're going to talk about this morning, this one was the foundation. Every other offering described in Leviticus really built upon this sin offering. It just tweaked it a little bit and it added a couple different things to it. The, the foundation was this sin offering. Uh, the offer, offerer would place his hand on the head of what he was offering, this animal that he was offering as a sin offering. He would place his hand on there and he, that would represent that he is responsible for this lamb or this bull being killed. Now, this offerer, whoever was bringing the animal to the tabernacle or the temple, was responsible to kill it himself. He was responsible to know that his sin is what is causing the death of this animal. It was very personal. It was very, they were taking great responsibility that this was uh, what God required for their sin. The animal, animal's blood was sprinkled on the altar and the rest was drained. All the rest of the blood was drained at the base of the altar. All of the animal's organs were offered on the altar to the Lord and the animal's carcass would be burnt outside the camp. And so God gave strict instructions on how this sin offering, how this atonement was supposed to be made. Now, it was offered many times throughout the year. It was offered at the new moon. It was offered each day of the Passover, the festival of weeks, the festival of trumpets, the day of atonement. All throughout these holidays, it was, it was performed through all the people, all of Israel, performing this sin offering. Year after year, this gruesome display of sin would stain the memory of the Israelites. 
Every time they came to the tabernacle, every time they later came to the temple and they placed their hand on this, the, an, the head of this animal and they, would, and they would have to kill this animal themselves and then they would have to take apart this animal and they would burn its organs and they would drain its blood. This gruesome, gruesome display no doubt stained their memory every time they did it. And it was a gruesome image of how serious God takes sin. Hebrews 9.22 in the New Testament, the Bible says, And almost all things by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Now the good news is, this morning, that we don't need to perform this sacrifice anymore. Uh, that we are not responsible for the sin offering in our lives. All we need to do is claim it through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 9 very quickly. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews explains all of this. So he's writing to an audience here that was very familiar with what we're discussing. Very familiar with the laws that Leviticus teaches. And so the writer of Hebrews in chapter number 9, verse number 13, he brings it all together. And he says, For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. What a meaty verse, all right? There is so much going on in here, and we don't have time to really dig into all of it. I think we all understand this morning that Jesus was the propitiation. He was the replacement for these Old Testament sacrifices. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Ephesians 2.13, by now is Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. And I don't want to just fly through this because there might be someone here this morning who still hasn't claimed that sacrifice. It doesn't matter if you're in Bible college. It doesn't matter what age you are. It doesn't matter where you're from. If you haven't claimed this sacrifice yet, you're, you're still in sin. You're not going to heaven. You're separated from God for all of eternity. And I don't want to just assume that everyone in this room has claimed that offering, has claimed that sacrifice through Jesus Christ. If you haven't, Today is the day of salvation. Let's continue because there's another type of sin offering that the Bible describes in Leviticus. Turn back over to Leviticus chapter number 9. This specific sin offering would be mentioned in other passages as the trespass offering. Now the trespass offering was a type of sin offering, but there was one thing that changed about it. And it was very, it's very significant. You see, now, first characteristic of this trespass offering, some commentaries would call it a guilt offering, was that it signified a public fine or debt. Now, everyone was required to do the sin offering. Everyone, rich or poor, was required to come to offer the sin offering throughout the year. But the trespass offering was very different. This trespass offering would be made uh, as well as the sin offering for a public fine or a debt. 
Now, this would be offered as a legal transaction, okay? So it, when you broke a law or you broke a promise, you broke a vow, you were responsible to buy another sheep or bring one from your herd, and you would, this would be the fine that you would pay for breaking that law. And many times this would, uh, this would symbolize the breaking of a Nazarite vow. A leper would come. Uh, if he was cleansed, he would have to uh, have this trespass offering, property rights, fraud. All of these legalities were symbolized by this trespass offering. It was a symbol of, of uh, sin, not before God as much as it was sin before men. So the atonement is taken care of by the sin offering. But there's some, th we know, there's a lot of things going on among humans, among people. A lot of drama going on, a lot of breaking of promises. And so when that would happen, that person would be required to come and, and fulfill this trespass offering. Have you ever been wronged by someone? Uh, have you ever had someone break a promise or, or break a vow to you? Uh, it, it doesn't feel really good. I, I, I was trying to think of what was the biggest promise that someone broke to me would be. And, and I came back to a promise someone made me on Craigslist. Okay, now... I should have known better, okay, hindsight is always 2020. so I should have known better, but a couple years ago, my wife and I decided that we need to start a family, and that we needed to start it with a dog, okay? This is Penny, and uh, this, is, this is when we first got Penny, okay? And we named her Penny because she was supposed to stay really, really small, okay? And uh, the owner of this dog that we bought it from said that she would only get to be about 10 pounds and that she was a multi-poo. Okay, now if you don't know what that is, that's a Maltese and a poodle put together. Okay, we wanted something with poodle so that it wouldn't shed all over the house. Okay, so we, we were really thinking this through. Okay, we didn't even ask the owner what we were looking for. This was just posted on Craigslist, a multi-poo, only supposed to go, grow to about 10 pounds. We got her. She became part of the family. We house trained her. I mean, it was just great. And she started growing. Now... We didn't really know when she would stop growing because she still was growing. <laughs> this is Penny. I think we have one more picture of her now. Okay. She's about 50 pounds. Okay. And she sheds everywhere. Okay. There is not one bit of Maltese or Poodle in this dog. Okay. So, lesson learned, don't buy a dog on Craigslist, okay? Now, I don't know what, how you have been wronged personally. I don't know what person has lied to you or, or what has happened in your life, but it's really wrong when we're the ones who are responsible for it. When we're the ones who are breaking fellowship. When we are the ones who are stirring up trouble in God's house. You see... This also represented, this was offered as the, the same as a sin offering, but the only difference was that instead of offering the blood on the altar, it was sprinkled around the altar. So it wasn't just on top, it was, also, it was around the altar. That's very significant, representing the sin, our circumference of sin, our horizontal sin with other people. You see, I have no doubt that the majority of people in here have the atonement taken care of. We have the atonement through Jesus Christ. We've trusted in him as our savior. But God takes it to another level. 
he says, you might have the atonement taken care of, the sin offering is done, but there's a trespass offering. And if you're not right with someone and you've wronged someone or you've done something that has hurt someone, then you need to clean it up. You, a lot of times we're so busy in life that we can try to force ourselves to forget or explain it away. Oh, I didn't mean to do that. Or, oh, that person probably, probably didn't understand. Or all of these different excuses. And we just go about our day and we build it up. We pile it up. And then in a moment like this comes, and a lot of times we can't even remember what sin we've committed. We have a responsibility before God to get this taken care of. If there's a, 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 an argument going on, if you've wronged someone, if there's sin before your fellow man, we need to get that taken care of. Hebrews 12, 14, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. I don't know, maybe it's a secret sin. Maybe it's a sin that you thought you have gotten away with for years and years and no one has ever caught you. I just want you to think about this for a second. If you were the devil... Okay, a loaded question here. If you were the devil, when would you expose a Christian sin? Would you do it in Bible college when it really didn't, doesn't matter, it doesn't affect many people? Or would you wait till they're in ministry? Would you wait till they're a pastor? Would you wait till they've built some influence for Christ? I don't know about you, but the devil might be waiting in your life. He might be waiting until God begins to bless your ministry and you build an influence and, and he's waiting for that moment so he can catch you in the secret sin that no one knows about. And soon it's going to affect a whole lot more people than it would if you got it taken care of today. Don't, don't think because you're not getting caught that you're getting away with it forever. Don't think that just because you haven't gotten this taken care of that it's not going to affect your life later on. We've heard of stories after stories of, of preachers who have built a great influence in our churches and in our nation. And, and something comes out that they've been doing for years and years and years and years. And the devil just waits for the perfect moment to make everybody know about it. To take that person out of ministry and discourage hundreds of people. The Bible says in Numbers, be, but if ye will not do so, if you're not going to follow God, if you're not going to get it right, behold, ye have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. So that's the first category. We can't experience any blessing, any fire, until we've cleaned up our sins. Second category, very quickly. We have another category, and they are, these are the burnt offerings. The burnt offerings. And this represents to us to commit ourselves to commit ourselves. So we need to clean up our sin. We need to get all of that junk taken care of. But then we also need to commit ourselves to the Lord. The Bible describes these offerings, the burnt offering and the meat offering specifically as representing full devotion to God. You see, uh, the Bible says specifically about the burnt offering that this is described in Leviticus chapter one. And you can read through all of the descriptions of it. But really, this represents a spiritual commitment, a spiritual commitment. 
You see, this was similar to the sin offering, but it was for a different purpose. It was for an entirely different purpose than the sin offering. It, this offering was not scattered. It wasn't burnt outside the camp. It wasn't drained. It wasn't all of these different things that, what, that happened with the sin offering. This offering was completely consumed on the altar. This offering was left there on the altar until there was just ashes left. This represented the complete devotion that someone would have to God. After they, they had the sin offering, and if they needed to take care of a trespass offering, they would take care of that. But to go the extra mile to show that they were completely devoted to what God had for them, they would present a burnt offering. And this offering would burn and be consumed completely on the altar. I can't help thinking about Romans chapter 12, verse number 1, a verse that we've, a lot of us have memorized. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. You see, that is that moment in your Christian life when you realize you can't do anything unless you are living in the will of God. You don't want to do anything else. Anything outside of the will of God doesn't even appeal to you. You want to completely be devoted to what God has for you. But then there's another offering, okay? This one is called the meat offering. Now, don't let the name confuse you. The old English here isn't talking about what we think of meat, okay? It's more a word that just encompasses all food here. So this is not just meat as we would think of today. This was mostly a grain offering or a cereal offering. Okay, and as you study this, all these different names will pop up. It's the same thing. This represented the tithe of the harvest. Okay, so if someone came and they offered this burnt offering, guess what? They were required to give the meat offering. They were required to give the grain offering, the cereal offering. Now, why is this? Because the spiritual commitment is really important, right? I hope a lot of us can go back to a time in our lives when we completely gave ourselves to God, when we, we surrendered to ministry or we surrendered to whatever God had for us in our lives. Hopefully we have that moment that we can look back to. And when we go through trials and hard times, we can look back to that moment and know, yes, I know God called me, but... We don't just stop there. It's not just about the burn offering. It's also about the meat offering. Now, this was a mostly plant-based offering. Uh, many times this was a handful of food that was burnt as a memorial on the altar, but then it was also 10% of the entire harvest that this Israelite would, would have that year. And so he would, uh, he would get, sprinkle a little bit on top of the offering, on top of the altar, but then the rest of it would go directly to the priest, and this would help provide for the priest. It would help them to live. It would be a provision for uh, the priest. But what's really significant about this is that it accompanied every burnt offering. Every single burnt offering that was brought to the tabernacle also required a meat offering. You see, it was like God was saying, I'm thankful for your decision to be completely devoted to me, but what are you going to do about it? I'm thankful for the burnt offering, don't get me wrong, but... There's a practical commitment here, too. It's not just about making a decision. It's about making a difference. 
It's not just about coming down to the altar. And oh yeah, we're really good at this, okay? We're really good at coming down to the altar and praying. And man, we could be sincere about it. We could, we, God's moving in our hearts and wow, it's just, we're just so overcome by the presence of God. And we come before the altar and we pray for maybe about 15 seconds. And then we go back to our seats and we feel all good about ourselves, right? Man, I made a decision. Mm. But you know what? The real decision is when you're at work that afternoon. The real decision is whether you're going to stand up for Christ, whether you're going to lead someone to Christ, whether you're going to bear fruit, whether you're going to do practically what God expects you to do. Don't get me wrong. The burnt offering is significant and we should all have that time in our lives. But don't forget about the practical commitment. Don't forget about the meat offering. Numbers 28, 24, you can read it later, tells about how that this offering was made uh, at, during every burnt offering. Now, as you study these offerings, it gets so cool when you start reading the Old Testament again. Okay, because then you start reading stories and it's not just when the Bible says an offering, you're thinking, oh yeah, okay, burning the sheep. Okay, but it's a little bit more significant now. And, and when I was reading even through the story of Hannah, and I was reading in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse number 24, the Bible says, And when she, Hannah, had weaned him, speaking of Samuel, she took him up with her with three bullocks and one ephah of flour and a bottle of wine and brought him into the house of the Lord in Shiloh, and the child was young. Guess what? That was a meat offering. That was the burnt offering and the meat offering together. This was Hannah thanking God for what God had done in her life. And she comes to the tabernacle and she gives God these offerings and she's praising God for what he has done. And she's so thankful that her treasure is not on earth, but it is heaven. Luke chapter 12, verse number 34. For when you're, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This was a financial commitment. This was a commitment practically that they would follow God in everything that they were expected to do. And then let's look at the last category and we'll be done. This is my favorite one out of all of them. So we talked about the sin offering and the trespass offerings. We talked about the burnt and the meat offerings. But then there's this phrase called the peace offering. The peace offering. Now remember our progression here. The progression is very important. You can't experience the peace offering. You can't offer the peace offering until you've taken care of the first ones. But then in very, very special occasions, we read about it in Leviticus chapter 9. It's described in Leviticus chapter 3 if you want to study it a little deeper. But this was a significant offering because it wasn't even required. Now, the, this typically was offered during a time of great victory of celebration or revival that was happening in the land. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not really a, a big party guy or a big celebration guy, okay? Uh, maybe Dr. Gesch can relate to me. Usually when people invite you to something and they start listing off every person who's coming, my heart just gets deeper and deeper because the bigger the crowd, the more uncomfortable I am as an introvert, okay? I just can't, I, I, don't, I don't enjoy it, okay? Now, I, I have to do it for ministry and I have to, to serve God, you know, the, the way that God has called me to do, okay? But let's just, let's just be honest here. As an introvert, the bigger the crowd, uh, not as much fun, okay? My favorite crowd is just me and my wife, that's it, okay? 
So I'm not really a big celebration guy. I think that the, the worst part about a celebration is when it's your birthday, okay? This, is, this might just be me, but it's really awkward when someone sings happy birthday to you, okay? I don't know who came up with this tradition, but, but we need to stop it right now, okay? Because no, the only people who enjoy singing the birthday song are the people who are singing it. Everyone else, the birthday person has to sit there and endure this thing, okay? Now, whether it's at a restaurant, that's the worst. Complete strangers singing happy birthday to you. They can't even carry a tune in a bucket. But then it's even awkward for a friend, uh, you know, gathering around singing because you're just standing there. All right. All right. Very good. I, I, I vote that we shorten the happy birthday song to just a couple notes and just be done with it. OK, but I'm just not a really big celebration guy. I'm just not a really big. I might even go back to when I was a kid and no one showed up to my birthday party. I know I'll, I'll get counseling later for that, but there's just something about a celebration or birthday or something, a party. I, I just really don't enjoy. But this offering was for that specific purpose. It was for celebration and it was for victory. Now, it was purely voluntary. It was something that uh, no one was required to do. No one came to the tabernacle and had to perform this offering. It was purely voluntary. It was not rigidly commanded by detail. You read through the qualifications for it. It's not like the other ones. The other ones are very strict on exactly what needs to happen, where the priest is going to go, what he's going to do, where the person's going to be. It's very specific. But for the peace offering, it's a little bit easier. It's not as, not as specific. And the, poor, the presentation was basically this. The person would lay his hand on the, on the animal as usual. The animal, animal would be killed at the door of the sanctuary, not at the altar. So it was a little bit of a less gruesome type of thing. The animal would be killed there. And then they would come and they would present this sacrifice. And they would only burn a little bit. They would cook the rest of it. And this is just an amazing glimpse into God's character. Because when we think of an offering, we always think of the sin offering. But guess what? There's an offering called the peace offering that the people just brought it. They cooked it on the altar. And guess what? The person who offered it would go and celebrate and they would eat this feast with their family and with their friends. It was a way of God saying, I have fellowship with you. I have given you victory I love you. I care for you. Why don't you go and celebrate? It's like your parents giving you the credit card and saying, hey, why don't you go to a nice restaurant tonight and just, just have a great meal with your friends on me? God is saying, burn it, cook it. I don't know, medium well. I don't know what, whatever. I don't know if they gave their orders or not, but they would cook it on the altar and then they would take it home and they would celebrate. Now, significant peace offerings in the Old Testament. Joshua did it after conquering Ai. Saul did it uh, a little bit impatiently. He couldn't wait for Samuel. This was the offering that he got in trouble for later. Uh, David uh, submitted this peace offering when he brought the ark into Jerusalem. Solomon did it at the dedication of the temple. Hezekiah did it at the rededication of the temple. This was an offering that was so peaceful and so amazing that people just did it because they love God. It wasn't required. It was just saying, God, 
I want to celebrate what you've done for me. God, I love you. Psalm chapter 40, verse number 16. Let all those that seek thee rejoice and be glad in thee. Let such as love thy salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. Psalm 9, 14. But I have trusted in thy mercy. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. Philippians 2, 17. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. There's an amazing peace and joy that comes when you're right with God. You can't enjoy the peace offering unless you've taken care of the other ones. You might be thinking, well, it seems like I'm just, just dragging. Man, I don't enjoy the Christian life anymore. It's all these rules. There's just no peace. There's no joy anymore. You might want to go back to the other offerings that we talked about and get those taken care of. Because when you're right with God and you're dependent upon his grace, then you're going to enjoy this peace offering. Turn over to Judges 20 and we'll be done. Judges 20. Very, very significant story when it comes to all these offerings. Okay. It's a little bit of a, a, an unknown story in the Bible for different reasons. This isn't really a story that you would teach in Sunday school. Uh, this, this is a bit of a gruesome story, and we don't have time to get into all of the details of it. But basically, in Judges chapter 20, it's describing this generation that we read about in Judges 3 that knew not the Lord. Okay, so it, it's not chronological. This is an appendix, appendix of Judges. This is back when Phineas was the high priest. He was the grandson of Aaron. Okay, we give, give you some, uh, some of the timeline there. So basically, these guys in Gibeah commit this horrible crime against this, this Levite and his concubine, and it's just a mess. And the Levite, they eventually kill the concubine. The Levite sends pieces of her to every tribe of Israel to get their attention. And they come back, and they all meet together, and they realize that they need to take care of this. Now, Gibeah was in Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. And so they went to the tribe of Benjamin, and they said, you guys need to give us these guys, and we need to punish them for what they did. The Benjamites said, no, we're not going to do that. And they kind of just pushed them off. So now we have a problem, because you've got 11 tribes who, who want to follow God, get this taken care of, and you've got one tribe who doesn't. So this is really the first civil war in Israel just a generation or two after Joshua, uh, that, that we see this, this battle happening. So the children of Israel get together, they pray. It's almost a little bit flippantly when they pray, when you read through it. And, and they, they call upon God. God says, yes, you need to go take care of this. Send Judah. So they all go out and we have this battle between Judah and Benjamin. Well, Judah loses. They're done. They lose thousands of people. They come back. And they report that Benjamin just won the battle. They go back to God and they say, God, do you want us to go try again? And God says, yes, send Judah. Judah goes back over. They fight with Benjamin and they lose again. And they go back. And now they're humbled. Now they realize that they're not the big uh, tribe that they think they are. And they go to God this time and it's very different. Look at Judges chapter 20, verse number 26. Then all the children of Israel and all the people went up and came into the house of God and wept and sat there before the Lord. This was not flippant anymore. This was just, they were sitting there waiting. 
And they fasted that day until even. And look what they did next. They offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Next verse, And the children of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, stood before it in those days, saying, Shall I yet again go out to battle against the children of Benjamin, my brother, or shall I cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will deliver them into thine hand. Well, we know the end of the story. They win the battle. What made the difference? I believe it was the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. They weren't just going to God flippantly, just doing what was required of them. They came to God and they sought his face. They sought his will. They presented themselves completely, spiritually and practically. And they gave him peace offerings to celebrate his goodness. And that made all the difference. Sicilian Proverbs says, there is no victory without sacrifice. You're not going to be able to have victory in your Christian life without being a living sacrifice. Hebrews 13, 15, By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name.